Part six being Book two, chapters four, five, and six of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book two, chapters four, five and six chapter four containing one of the most bloody battles or rather duels that were ever recorded in domestic history for the reasons mentioned in the preceding chapter and from some other matrimonial concessions well known to most husbands and which like the secrets of freemasonry should be divulged to none who are not members of that honourable fraternity mrs partridge was pretty well satisfied that she had condemned her husband without cause and endeavoured by acts of kindness to make him amends for her false suspicion her passions were indeed equally violent whichever way they inclined for as she could be extremely angry so could she be altogether as fond but though these passions ordinarily succeeded each other and scarce twenty-four hours ever passed in which the pedagogue was not in some degree the object of both yet on extraordinary occasions when the passion of anger had raged very high the remission was usually longer and so was the case at present for she continued longer in a state of affability after this fit of jealousy was ended than her husband had ever known before and had it not been for some little exercises which all the followers of Xantippe are obliged to perform daily, Mr. Partridge would have enjoyed a perfect serenity of several months. Perfect calms at sea are always suspected by the experienced mariner to be the forerunners of a storm, and I know some persons who, without being generally the devotees of superstition, are apt to apprehend that great and unusual peace or tranquillity will be attended with its opposite, for which reason the ancients used on such occasions to sacrifice to the goddess Nemesis, a deity who was thought by them to look with an invidious eye on human felicity, and to have a peculiar delight in overturning it. As we are very far from believing in any such heathen goddess, or from encouraging any superstition, so we wish Mr. John F., or some other such philosopher, would bestir himself a little in order to find out the real cause of this sudden transition from good to bad fortune, which hath been so often remarked, and of which we shall proceed to give an instant, for it is our province to relate facts, and we shall leave causes to persons of much higher genius. Mankind have always taken great delight in knowing and descanting on the actions of others. Hence there have been in all ages and nations certain places set apart for public rendezvous, where the curious might meet and satisfy their mutual curiosity. Among these the barber's shops have justly borne the preeminence. Among the Greeks, barber's news was a proverbial expression, and Horace, in one of his epistles, makes honourable mention of the Roman barbers in the same light. Those of England are known to be nowise inferior to their Greek or Roman predecessors. 
you there see foreign affairs discussed in a manner little inferior to that with which they are handled in the coffee-houses, and domestic occurrences are much more largely and freely treated in the former than in the latter. But this serves only for men. Now, whereas the females of this country, especially those of the lower order, do associate themselves much more than those of other nations, our polity would be highly deficient if they had not some place set apart likewise for the indulgence of their curiosity, seeing they are in this no way inferior to the other half of the species. In enjoying, therefore, such place of rendezvous, the British fair ought to esteem themselves more happy than any of their foreign sisters, as I do not remember either to have read in history, or to have seen in my travels anything of the like kind. This place, then, is no other than the Chandler's shop, the known seat of all the news, or, as it is vulgarly called, gossiping, in every parish in England. Mrs. Partridge, being one day at this assembly of females, was asked by one of her neighbours if she had heard no news lately of Jenny Jones, to which she answered in the negative. Upon this the other replied with a smile, that the parish was very much obliged to her for having turned Jenny away as she did. Mrs. Partridge, whose jealousy, as the reader well knows, was long since cured, and who had no other quarrel to her maid, answered boldly she did not know any obligation the parish had to her on that account, for she believed Jenny had scarce left her equal behind her. "'No, truly,' said the gossip, "'I hope not, though I fancy we have sluts in our too. "'Then you have not heard, it seems, "'that she hath been brought to bed of two bastards, "'but as they are not born here, "'my husband and the other overseer says "'we shall not be obliged to keep them.' Two bastards!' answered Mrs. Partridge hastily, you surprise me. I don't know whether we must keep them, but I am sure they must have been begotten here, for the wench hath not been nine months gone away. Nothing can be so quick and sudden as the operations of the mind, especially when hope or fear or jealousy, to which the two others are but journeymen, set it to work. It occurred instantly to her that Jenny had scarce ever been out of her own house while she lived with her. The leaning over the chair, the sudden starting up, the Latin, the smile, and many other things rushed upon her all at once. The satisfaction her husband expressed in the departure of Jenny appeared now to be only dissembled, again in the same instant to be real, and yet to confirm her jealousy as proceeding from satiety and a hundred other bad causes. In a word, she was convinced of her husband's guilt, and immediately left the assembly in confusion. As fair Grimalkin, who, though the youngest of the feline family, degenerates not in ferocity from the elder branches of her house, and though inferior in strength, is equal in fierceness to the noble tiger himself, when a little mouse, whom it hath long tormented in sport, escapes from her clutches for a while, frets, scolds, growls, swears, but if the trunk or box behind which the mouse lay hid be again removed, she flies like lightning on her prey, and with envenomed wrath, bites, scratches, mumbles, and tears the little animal. Not with less fury did Mrs. Partridge fly on the poor pedagogue. Her tongue, teeth, and hands fell all upon him at once. His wig was in an instant torn from his head, his shirt from his back, and from his face descended five streams of blood, denoting the number of claws with which nature had unhappily armed the enemy. 
Mr. Partridge acted for some time on the defensive only. Indeed, he attempted only to guard his face with his hands. But as he found that his antagonist abated nothing of her rage, he thought he might at least endeavour to disarm her, or rather to confine her arms, in doing which her cap fell off in the struggle, and her hair, being too short to reach her shoulders, erected itself on her head. Her stays likewise, which were laced through one single hole at the bottom, burst open, and her breasts, which were much more redundant than her hair, hung down below her middle. Her face was likewise marked with the blood of her husband, her teeth gnashed with rage, and fire such as sparkles from a smith's forge darted from her eyes, so that altogether this Amazonian heroine might have been an object of terror to a much bolder man than Mr. Partridge. He had at length the good fortune, by getting possession of her arms, to render those weapons which she wore at the ends of her fingers useless, which she no sooner perceived than the softness of her sex prevailed over her rage, and she presently dissolved in tears, which soon after concluded in a fit. That small share of sense which Mr. Partridge had hitherto preserved through this scene of fury, of the cause of which he was hitherto ignorant, now utterly abandoned him. He ran instantly into the street, hallooing out that his wife was in the agonies of death, and beseeching the neighbours to fly with the utmost haste to her assistance. Several good women obeyed his summons, who, entering his house and applying the usual remedies on such occasions, Mrs. Partridge was at length, to the great joy of her husband, brought to herself. As soon as she had a little recollected her spirits, and somewhat composed herself with a cordial, she began to inform the company of the manifold injuries she had received from her husband, who, she said, was not contented to injure her in her bed, but upon her upbraiding him with it, had treated her in the cruellest manner imaginable, had tore her cap and hair from her head, and her stays from her body, giving her at the same time several blows, the marks of which she should carry to the grave. The poor man, who bore on his face many more visible marks of the indignation of his wife, stood in silent astonishment at this accusation, which, the reader will, I believe, bear witness for him, had greatly exceeded the truth, for indeed he had not struck her once, and this silence being interpreted to be a confession of the charge by the whole court, they all began at once, una voce, to rebuke and revile him, repeating often that none but a coward ever struck a woman. Mr. Partridge bore all this patiently, but when his wife appealed to the blood on her face as an evidence of his barbarity, he could not help laying claim to his own blood, for so it really was, as he thought it very unnatural that this should rise up, as we are taught that of a murdered person often doth, in vengeance against him. To this the women made no other answer than that it was pity it had not come from his heart instead of his face, all declaring that if their husbands should lift their hands against them, they would have their heart's blood out of their bodies. After much admonition for what was past, and much good advice to Mr. Partridge for his future behaviour, the company at length departed, and left the husband and wife to a personal conference together, in which Mr. Partridge soon learnt the cause of all his sufferings. Chapter 5. Containing much matter to exercise the judgment and reflection of the reader. 
I believe it is a true observation that few secrets are divulged to one person only, but certainly it would be next to a miracle that a fact of this kind should be known to a whole parish and not transpire any farther. And indeed a very few days had passed before the country, to use a common phrase, rung of the schoolmaster of Little Baddington, who was said to have beaten his wife in the most cruel manner. Nay, in some places it was reported he had murdered her, in others that he had broke her arms, in others her legs. In short, there was scarce an injury which can be done to a human creature, but what Mrs. Partridge was somewhere or other affirmed to have received from her husband. The cause of this quarrel was likewise variously reported, for, as some people said that Mrs. Partridge had caught her husband in bed with his maid, so many other reasons of a very different kind went abroad. Nay, some transferred the guilt to the wife, and the jealousy to the husband. Mrs. Wilkins had long ago heard of this quarrel, but as a different cause from the true one had reached her ears, she thought proper to conceal it and the rather, perhaps, as the blame was universally laid on Mr. Partridge, and his wife, when she was servant to Mr. Allworthy, had in something offended Mrs. Wilkins, who was not of a very forgiving temper. But Mrs. Wilkins, whose eyes could see objects at a distance, and who could very well look forward a few years into futurity, had perceived a strong likelihood of Captain Bliffill's being hereafter her master, and as she plainly discerned that the captain bore no great good will to the little foundling, she fancied it would be rendering him an agreeable service if she could make any discoveries that might lessen the affection which Mr. Allworthy seemed to have contracted for this child, and which gave visible uneasiness to the captain, who could not entirely conceal it even before Allworthy himself, though his wife, who acted her part much better in public, frequently recommended to him her own example of conniving at the folly of her brother, which, she said, she at least as well perceived, and as much resented, as any other possibly could. Mrs. Wilkins, having therefore by accident gotten a true scent of the above story, though long after it had happened, failed not to satisfy herself thoroughly of all the particulars, and then acquainted the captain that she had at last discovered the true father of the little bastard, which she was sorry, she said, to see her master lose his reputation in the country by taking so much notice of. The captain chid her for the conclusion of her speech, as an improper assurance in judging of her master's actions, for if his honour or his understanding would have suffered the captain to make an alliance with Mrs. Wilkins, his pride would by no means have admitted it, and, to say the truth, there is no conduct less politic than to enter into any confederacy with your friend's servants against their master, for by these means you afterwards become the slave of these very servants, by whom you are constantly liable to be betrayed. And this consideration perhaps it was, which prevented Captain Bliffill from being more explicit with Mrs. Wilkins, or from encouraging the abuse which she had bestowed on Allworthy. But though he declared no satisfaction to Mrs. Wilkins at this discovery, he enjoyed not a little from it in his own mind, and resolved to make the best use of it he was able he kept this matter a long time concealed within his own breast, in hopes that Mr. Allworthy might hear it from some other person. But Mrs. Wilkins, whether she resented the captain's behaviour, or whether his cunning was beyond her, and she feared the discovery might displease him, 
never afterwards opened her lips about the matter. I have thought it somewhat strange upon reflection that the housekeeper never acquainted Mrs. Blifil with this news. As women are more inclined to communicate all pieces of intelligence to their own sex than to ours, the only way, as it appears to me, of solving this difficulty is by imputing it to that distance which was now grown between the lady and the housekeeper. Whether this arose from a jealousy in Mrs. Blifil that Wilkins showed too great a respect to the foundling, for while she was endeavouring to ruin the little infant in order to ingratiate herself with the captain, she was every day more and more commending it before Allworthy, as his fondness for it every day increased. This, notwithstanding all the care she took at other times to express the direct contrary to Mrs. Blifil, perhaps offended that delicate lady, who certainly now hated Mrs. Wilkins, and though she did not, or possibly could not, absolutely remove her from her place she found however the means of making her life very uneasy this mrs wilkins at length so resented that she very openly showed all manner of respect and fondness to little tommy in opposition to mrs blifil the captain therefore finding the story in danger of perishing he at last took an opportunity to reveal it himself he was one day engaged with Mr. Allworthy in a discourse on charity, in which the captain, with great learning, proved to Mr. Allworthy that the word charity in Scripture nowhere means beneficence or generosity. The Christian religion, he said, was instituted for much nobler purposes than to enforce a lesson which many heathen philosophers had taught us long before, and which, though it might perhaps be called a moral virtue, savoured but little of that sublime Christian-like disposition, that vast elevation of thought, in purity approaching to angelic perfection, to be attained, expressed, and felt only by grace." Those, he said, came nearer to the scripture meaning, who understood by it candour, or the forming of a benevolent opinion of our brethren, and passing a favourable judgment on their actions, a virtue much higher and more extensive in its nature than a pitiful distribution of arms, which, though we would never so much prejudice or even ruin our families, could never reach many, whereas charity, in the other and truer sense, might be extended to all mankind. He said, Considering who the disciples were, it would be absurd to conceive the doctrine of generosity or giving alms to have been preached to them, and, as we could not well imagine this doctrine should be preached by its divine author to men who could not practice it, much less shall we think it understood so by those who can practice it and do not. But though, continued he, there is, I am afraid, little merit in these benefactions. There would, I must confess, be much pleasure in them to a good mind, if it was not abated by one consideration. I mean that we are liable to be imposed upon, and to confer our choicest favours often on the undeserving, as you must own was your case in your bounty to that worthless fellow Partridge, for two or three such examples must greatly lessen the inward satisfaction which a good man would otherwise find in generosity, nay, may even make him timorous in bestowing, lest he should be guilty of supporting vice and encouraging the wicked, a crime of a very black dye, 
and for which it will by no means be a sufficient excuse that we have not actually intended such an encouragement, unless we have used the utmost caution in choosing the objects of our beneficence. A consideration which I make no doubt hath greatly checked the liberality of many a worthy and pious man. Mr. Allworthy answered he could not dispute with the captain in the Greek language, and therefore could say nothing as to the true sense of the word which is translated charity, but that he had always thought it was interpreted to consist in action, and that giving alms constituted at least one branch of that virtue. As to the meritorious part, he said, he readily agreed with the captain, for where could be the merit of barely discharging a duty which, he said, let the word charity have what construction it would, it sufficiently appeared to be from the whole tenor of the New Testament. And as he thought it an indispensable duty, enjoined both by the Christian law and by the law of nature itself, so it was withal so pleasant that if any duty could be said to be its own reward, or to pay us while we were discharging it, it was this. To confess the truth, said he, there is one degree of generosity, of charity I would have called it, which seems to have some show of merit, and that is where, from a principle of benevolence and Christian love, we bestow on another what we really want ourselves, where, in order to lessen the distresses of another, we condescend to share some part of them by giving what even our own necessities cannot well spare. This is, I think, meritorious. But to relieve our brethren only with our superfluities, to be charitable, I must use the word, rather at the expense of our coffers than ourselves, to save several families from misery, rather than hang up an extraordinary picture in our houses, or to gratify any other idle, ridiculous vanity, this seems to be only being human creatures. Nay, I will venture to go farther. It is being in some degrees epicures. For what could the greatest epicure wish, rather than to eat with many mouths instead of one, which I think may be predicated of any one who knows that the bread of many is owing to his own largesses? As to the apprehension of bestowing bounty on such as may hereafter prove unworthy objects, because many have proved such, surely it can never deter a good man from generosity. I do not think a few or many examples of ingratitude can justify a man's hardening his heart against the distresses of his fellow-creatures, nor do I believe it can ever have such effect on a truly benevolent mind. Nothing less than a persuasion of universal depravity can lock up the charity of a good man, and this persuasion must lead him, I think, either into atheism or enthusiasm. But surely it is unfair to argue such universal depravity from a few vicious individuals, nor was this, I believe, ever done by a man who, upon searching his own mind, found one certain exception to the general rule. He then concluded by asking who that Partridge was, whom he had called a worthless fellow. "'I mean,' said the captain, "'Partridge the barber, the schoolmaster, what do you call him? Partridge, the father of the little child, which you found in your bed.' Mr. Allworthy expressed great surprise at this account, and the captain as great at his ignorance of it, for, he said, he had known it above a month and at length recollected with much difficulty that he was told it by Mrs. Wilkins. Upon this Wilkins was immediately summoned, 
who, having confirmed what the captain had said, was by Mr. Allworthy, by and with the captain's advice, dispatched to little Baddington to inform herself of the truth of the fact, for the captain expressed great dislike at all hasty proceedings in criminal matters, and said he would by no means have Mr. Allworthy take any resolution, either to the prejudice of the child or its father, before he was satisfied that the latter was guilty, for though he had privately satisfied himself of this from one of Partridge's neighbours, yet he was too generous to give any such evidence to Mr. Allworthy. CHAPTER Six. THE TRIAL OF PARTRIDGE THE SCHOOLMASTER FOR INCONTINENCY, THE EVIDENCE OF HIS WIFE, A SHORT REFLECTION ON THE WISDOM OF OUR LAW, WITH OTHER GRAVE MATTERS, WHICH THOSE WILL LIKE BEST WHO UNDERSTAND THEM MOST. IT MAY BE WONDERED THAT A STORY SO WELL KNOWN, AND WHICH HAD FURNISHED SO MUCH MATTER OF CONVERSATION, SHOULD NEVER HAVE BEEN MENTIONED TO MR. ALLWORTHY HIMSELF, WHO WAS PERHAPS THE ONLY PERSON IN THAT COUNTRY WHO HAD NEVER HEARD OF IT. To account in some measure for this to the reader, I think proper to inform him that there was no one in the kingdom less interested in opposing that doctrine concerning the meaning of the word charity, which hath been seen in the preceding chapter, than our good man. Indeed, he was equally entitled to this virtue in either sense, for as no man was ever more sensible of the wants, or more ready to relieve the distresses of others, so none could be more tender of their characters, or slower to believe anything to their disadvantage. Scandal, therefore, never found any access to his table, for as it hath been long since observed, that you may know a man by his companions, so I will venture to say that by attending to the conversation at a great man's table, you may satisfy yourself of his religion, his politics, his taste, and indeed of his entire disposition, for though a few odd fellows will utter their own sentiments in all places, yet much the greater part of mankind have enough of the courtier to accommodate their conversation to the taste and inclination of their superiors. But to return to Mrs. Wilkins, who, having executed her commission with great dispatch, though at fifteen miles' distance, brought back such a confirmation of the schoolmaster's guilt, that Mr. Allworthy determined to send for the criminal, and examine him viva voce. Mr. Partridge, therefore, was summoned to attend in order to his defence, if he could make any, against this accusation. At the time appointed, before Mr. Allworthy himself, at Paradise Hall, came as well the said Partridge, with Anne his wife, as Mrs. Wilkins, his accuser. And now, Mr. Allworthy, being seated in the chair of justice, Mr. Partridge was brought before him. Having heard his accusation from the mouth of Mrs. Wilkins, he pleaded not guilty, making many vehement protestations of his innocence. Mrs. Partridge was then examined, who, after a modest apology for being obliged to speak the truth against her husband, related all the circumstances with which the reader hath already been acquainted, and at last concluded with her husband's confession of his guilt. Whether she had forgiven him or no, I will not venture to determine, but it is certain she was an unwilling witness in this cause, and it is probable, from certain other reasons, would never have been brought to depose as she did, had not Mrs. Wilkins with great art fished all out of her at her own house, and had she not indeed made promises in Mr. Allworthy's name that the punishment of her husband should not be such as might anywise affect his family. 
Partridge still persisted in asserting his innocence, though he admitted he had made the above-mentioned confession, which he, however, endeavoured to account for by protesting that he was forced into it by the continued importunity she used, who vowed that as she was sure of his guilt, she would never leave tormenting him till he had owned it, and faithfully promised that in such case she would never mention it to him more. Hence, he said, he had been induced falsely to confess himself guilty, though he was innocent, and that he believed he should have confessed a murder from the same motive. Mrs. Partridge could not bear this imputation with patience, and having no other remedy in the present place but tears, she called forth a plentiful assistance from them, and then, addressing herself to Mr. Allworthy, she said, or rather cried, "'May it please your worship, there never was any poor woman so injured as I am by that base man.' for this is not the only instance of his falsehood to me. No, may it please your worship, he hath injured my bed many's the good time and often. I could have put up with his drunkenness and neglect of his business, if he had not broke one of the sacred commandments. Beside, if it had been out of doors, I had not mattered it so much, but with my own servant in my own house, under my own roof, to defile my own chaste bed, which, to be sure, he hath with his beastly stinking whores. Yes, you villain, you have defiled my own bed, you have, and then you have charged me with bullocking you into owning the truth. It is very likely, and please your worship, that I should bullock him. I have marks enow about my body to show of his cruelty to me, and if you had been a man, you villain, you would have scorned to injure a woman in that manner. But you ain't half a man, you know it nor have you been half a husband to me. You need run after whores, you need, when I'm sure. And since he provokes me, I am ready, and please your worship, to take my bodily oath that I found them abed together. What you have forgot, I suppose, when you beat me into a fit, and made the blood run down my forehead, because I only civilly taxed you with your adultery. But I can prove it by all my neighbours. You have almost broke my heart. You have, you have. Here Mr. Allworthy interrupted, and begged her to be pacified, promising her that she should have justice. Then, turning to Partridge, who stood aghast, one half of his wits being hurried away by surprise, and the other half by fear, he said he was sorry to see there was so wicked a man in the world. He assured him that his prevaricating and lying backward and forward was a great aggravation of his guilt, for which the only atonement he could make was by confession and repentance. He exhorted him, therefore, to begin by immediately confessing the fact, and not to persist in denying what was so plainly proved against him, even by his own wife. Here, reader, I beg your patience a moment, while I make a just compliment to the great wisdom and sagacity of our law, which refuses to admit the evidence of a wife for or against her husband. This, says a certain learned author, who, I believe, was never quoted before in any but a law-book, would be the means of creating an eternal dissension between them. It would, indeed, be the means of much perjury, and of much whipping, fining, imprisoning, transporting, and hanging. Partridge stood a while silent, till, being bid to speak, he said he had already spoken the truth, and appealed to heaven for his innocence, and lastly to the girl herself, whom he desired his worship immediately to send for, for he was ignorant, or at least pretended to be so, 
that she had left that part of the country. Mr. Allworthy, whose natural love of justice, joined to his coolness of temper, made him always a most patient magistrate in hearing all the witnesses which an accused person could produce in his defence, agreed to defer his final determination of this matter till the arrival of Jenny, for whom he immediately dispatched a messenger, and then, having recommended peace between Partridge and his wife, though he addressed himself chiefly to the wrong person, he appointed them to attend again the third day, for he had sent Jenny a whole day's journey from his own house. At the appointed time the parties all assembled, when the messenger returning brought word that Jenny was not to be found, for that she had left her habitation a few days before, in company with a recruiting officer. Mr. Allworthy then declared that the evidence of such a slut as she appeared to be would have deserved no credit, but he said he could not help thinking that had she been present and would have declared the truth, she must have confirmed what so many circumstances, together with his own confession and the declaration of his wife that she had caught her husband in the fact, did sufficiently prove. He therefore once more exhorted Partridge to confess, but he, still avowing his innocence, Mr. Allworthy declared himself satisfied of his guilt, and that he was too bad a man to receive any encouragement from him. He therefore deprived him of his annuity, and recommended repentance to him on account of another world, and industry to maintain himself and his wife in this. There were not, perhaps, many more unhappy persons than poor Partridge. He had lost the best part of his income by the evidence of his wife, and yet was daily upbraided by her for having, among other things, been the occasion of depriving her of that benefit. But such was his fortune, and he was obliged to submit to it. Though I called him poor Partridge in the last paragraph, I would have the reader rather impute that epithet to the compassion of my temper than conceive it to be any declaration of his innocence. Whether he was innocent or not will perhaps appear hereafter, but if the historic muse hath entrusted me with any secrets, I will by no means be guilty of discovering them till she shall give me leave. Here, therefore, the reader must suspend his curiosity. Certain it is that whatever was the truth of the case, there was evidence more than sufficient to convict him before Allworthy. Indeed, much less would have satisfied a bench of justices on an order of bastardy. And yet, notwithstanding the positiveness of Mrs. Partridge, who would have taken the sacrament upon the matter, there is a possibility that the schoolmaster was entirely innocent, for though it appeared clear on comparing the time when Jenny departed from Little Baddington with that of her delivery, that she had there conceived this infant, yet it by no means followed of necessity that Partridge must have been its father, for to omit other particulars, there was in the same house a lad near eighteen, between whom and Jenny there had subsisted sufficient intimacy to found a reasonable suspicion, and yet so blind is jealousy, this circumstance never once entered into the head of the enraged wife. Whether Partridge repented or not, according to Mr. Allworthy's advice, is not so apparent. Certain it is that his wife repented heartily of the evidence she had given against him, especially when she found Mrs. Deborah had deceived her, and refused to make any application to Mr. Allworthy on her behalf. 
She had, however, somewhat better success with Mrs. Bliffill, who was, as the reader must have perceived, a much better-tempered woman, and very kindly undertook to solicit her brother to restore the annuity, in which, though good nature might have some share, yet a stronger and more natural motive will appear in the next chapter. These solicitations were nevertheless unsuccessful, for though Mr. Allworthy did not think, with some late writers, that mercy consists only in punishing offenders, yet he was as far from thinking that it is proper to this excellent quality to pardon great criminals wantonly, without any reason whatever. Any doubtfulness of the fact, or any circumstance of mitigation, was never disregarded. But the petitions of an offender, or the intercessions of others, did not in the least affect him. In a word, he never pardoned, because the offender himself or his friends were unwilling that he should be punished. Partridge and his wife were, therefore, both obliged to submit to their fate, which was indeed severe enough for so far was he from doubling his industry on account of his lessened income, that he did in a manner abandon himself to despair, and as he was by nature indolent, that vice now increased upon him, by which means he lost the little school he had, so that neither his wife nor himself would have had any bread to eat, had not the charity of some good Christian interposed, and provided them with what was just sufficient for their sustenance. As this support was conveyed to them by an unknown hand, they imagined, and so I doubt not will the reader, that Mr. Allworthy himself was their secret benefactor, who, though he would not openly encourage vice, could yet privately relieve the distresses of the vicious themselves, when these became too exquisite and disproportionate to their merit. In which light their wretchedness appeared now to fortune herself, for she at length took pity on this miserable couple, and considerably lessened the wretched state of Partridge, by putting a final end to that of his wife, who soon after caught the smallpox and died. The justice which Mr. Allworthy had executed on Partridge at first met with universal approbation, but no sooner had he felt its consequences than his neighbours began to relent and to compassionate his case, and presently after to blame that as rigour and severity, which they before called justice. They now exclaimed against punishing in cold blood, and sang forth the praises of mercy and forgiveness. These cries were considerably increased by the death of Mrs. Partridge, which, though owing to the distemper above mentioned, which is no consequence of poverty or distress, many were not ashamed to impute to Mr. Allworthy's severity, or, as they now termed it, cruelty. Partridge, having now lost his wife, his school, and his annuity, and the unknown person having now discontinued the last-mentioned charity, resolved to change the scene, and left the country where he was in danger of starving with the universal compassion of all his neighbours. End of chapter 6